Yes, God, may we realize, may we comprehend, may we understand today that you are more real than the wind in our lungs, the breath in our very bodies. God, you are more real than anything we can encounter or understand in this natural world. You are the creator and sustainer of life, our life, life on this planet as we know it. God, thank you that you are real, that you are alive, you are active today. That right now, God, you're working. Right now, God, you're working in hearts and in lives. God, that you're moving and ministering on our behalf, God, even in the areas that uh, we don't understand and we can't comprehend. God, you're still moving. We just take a moment and we say, Abba, Daddy God, we belong to you. Thank you for a father's love. God, I pray today that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened so that we would know the love of a father. Right now, God, even as it was, it was a pro- proclaimed in song, you're making all things new. So God, I pray right now, Lord, in our hearts and in our minds, there are those in the room with us right now who've struggled with an understanding of a father. They didn't have a father that showed them unconditional love. They didn't have a father that loved them through their weaknesses, through their failures. God, I pray right now, you're making all things new, that your love is so real, it's so tangible. We invite you right now, Holy Spirit, would you come? I know you will. I don't have to ask, would you come? We invite you, Holy Spirit, come. Right now, we receive understanding that can only come from you, God, making all things new. And those that are hurt and wounded right now because of uh, a father that didn't love the way that you love, God, I pray right now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you work in there. You, you work in, our, in their hearts and in their minds, making all things new. God, right now, I thank you for a, a new understanding, a new ability to imagine what it is to have a father like you. God, we just speak to those walls that have had them boxed in. We command them to come down. We shout at those walls and say, fall in Jesus' name. You are a good, good father. We are loved by you. You said you would not leave us orphans. (laughs) You would not leave us fatherless, but you would send the Holy Spirit. So we invite Holy Spirit right now beyond what we can understand in our mind. God, I'm asking Holy Spirit, you come and and encounter In manifestation, we invite you. Thank you for your presence. That old things are passed away. All things have been made new. As I was praying this morning and uh, actually on the way here, 
the Lord just kept stirring in my heart uh, about hope. <laughs> about hope. And uh, then I, Mel, I think it was Mel, was singing about making all things new. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I just want to elaborate on something that I said in prayer, is that uh, I really sense the Lord is saying, I want you to understand a father's love. I want you to understand, in John 14, he said, I will not leave you orphans, as orphans, as fatherless. And, and that affects a mindset so much, whether you grew up in an orphanage, amen, so you say, yeah. Both hands in the air. Or you grew up in a home and you had a father but didn't feel like you had the love of a father. I just really sense God is saying, I want to do something in that area where you can understand how a father loves. And that he, he, the father's love is one that's an unconditional love. There's not something we can do that can make him love us more, nor is there something we do that makes him love us less. And that's just not understood. I mean, in our culture, that's just hard to understand in the natural, to understand a father that's really that good, that really loves that way. But that's who he is. That's who he is. And uh, for three weeks, I've been trying to, to get to, so we're going to go there. Second Corinthians 3, we may get to in a minute. But we're going to go to Luke 15. And we may go somewhere else before you get settled in Luke, so just... It's a sword drill today. Y'all know what that is? Yeah. That's when you find out where you're going in your Bible. It's your sword. We were singing this, Abba, I belong to you. And, and Mel saying, you came running down that prodigal road. You came running with a ring and a robe. And... uh There's so much in this parable, I think, that we miss. I, I, I believe there's great truth in there to understand in, this, in that parable, this teaching that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, when we talk about those who have sinned and those who have walked away and when they come back and how there's restoration there. And uh, there's other things that God has taught me through that. But the one thing the Lord has highlighted me is I've meditated on this for the past three weeks that can be overlooked is the heart of the Father. And you go, no, that talks about, you know, the father, you came running down the prodigal road. Yeah, but to understand his heart, his mindset, we can look at the sin that was forgiven. We can look at the son who stayed home, and we can talk about an other, older brother mentality and all those things. But I think what's missed, if you're not careful, is you miss this heart of a benevolent father who's always looking, whose love is no different to the son who said, I wish you were dead, give me what's mine, than it was to the son who was ungrateful for what he had when he stayed at home. The heart of the Father was the same. It was unchanging. He loved them in a sacrificial way. It's a picture of the heart of a father who pursues his children. Do you understand that? In both incidences, both sons, the father pursued them. The, the prodigal that had gone and he, would, he had filled his belly with the, the ways of the world and had spent all his money when he came home, the father was there looking. He was there looking. 
the son who was at home and who was mad because they were throwing a party for the one who had been lost, the father could have said, well, he needs to get over it. But you know what the father did? He pursued him. That's the heart of our father. Is it no matter where we are, no matter, you can be frustrated with him. I've talked to different people in the past few weeks, and they talked about how they had gotten disappointed and discouraged and all those disses, just been dissed in life and even got frustrated with the father, but he was still there pursuing. He was still there drawing. He was still there loving because that's his heart. It's who he is. It's not what he does. First Corinthians 13 says, love never fails. And here's what I know about the Father's heart is it's always loving because it's who he is. He's always pouring out his love toward us. And if we'll embrace that love wherever we are, it doesn't make an excuse for where we are. But if we'll embrace it, then, then we can have hope and we can have boldness to come to him. Because what the enemy wants to do is he wants to have you hopeless and, and timid. He wants you to feel that you can't go to God because if look where you're at. Here's what's so amazing. I think I said it last week. God knows where you are. God knows what's going on. It's not a surprise to him. But what the enemy wants to do is use those lies to separate us from God, to not understand the heart of a father and what he has for us. And as, and I, was, as I was looking at that and meditating on this passage of Scripture in Luke 15, Jesus teaching, himself teaching here, and he's talking about uh, this son. Verse 12, we'll just read it. Verse 11, then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with, with prodigal living. That's just wasteful living. But when he, went, when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and before you. Verse 19, And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Hallelujah. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. You know, this is so beautiful because he said, bring the fatted calf. You know what that tells me? The father was pursuing the son that was gone. Why? Because he was fattening up a calf. Because he knew. He had hope. He knew his son was coming home. He would go every day and he would look. You know why he could know that? Because he knew how he had loved him. Not how the son had loved the father, but how the father had loved the son. That's good. He knew how he had loved the son, and he knew where his mindset was that 
that he was making foolish decisions, but he didn't stop loving him. He continued to love him. And the proof of a pursuing father is he had a calf that was set apart, that was being fattened, because he knew when his son was coming home, he was throwing a party. And so every day, this expectant father, he went out and he would look and he would wait to see his son coming over that hill so that he could embrace his son. Because, you know, I could teach you all the culture that's around it, that the son could have been stoned to death because literally what he said is, Dad, I wish you were dead. And to shame a father in that culture is he should have been stoned. Amen. Because they were under old covenant. They were under the law. And that's what it said. Rebellious children stone them. Well, that's in the herd. I'm just saying, other thing to hurt. Thank God for grace. Thank God for the New Testament. Glory, hallelujah. I wouldn't be here preaching. My mom and dad had to kill me a long time ago. I'm just saying. That's a fact, Jack. <laughs> Thank God for grace for the new covenant. But this father, he was, he was looking. He was waiting for the son. It said that he called for the servants and said, Bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. As I was looking at this, the Lord began to highlight some things to me. And uh, in the area of stewardship, and in the area of finances even. But as the more I looked into it, the more he showed me how we miss the, his heart in everything uh, if we're not careful. And I don't, I don't want to say that in a blanket term, but it's so easy. Let me say it this way. Let me clarify. It's easy to miss his heart if you don't know it. You can look at something totally different. You know, we were talking about this. I was uh, talking with someone in the parking lot last week after the service, and I, I said, I can remember, uh, you know, getting a whipping as a child, and I can remember, you know, being said, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. And my mindset was, well, let's swap roles. Let me whip you, and we'll both feel better. But the reality of that, because of the heart of the Father, until I became a father, I didn't understand that. But here's what I want you to understand. When I would discipline my daughter, which the Bible says, that the rod of correction, that the foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of correction will drive it far from them. All right, I'm going to say something. If I pinch you off, don't get mad at me, get mad at the Bible. It doesn't say time out in the corner will drive it far from them. It doesn't say taking their iPad or iPod away from them or their Xbox or whatever. It doesn't say that. It says the rod of correction. And I understand some, some people, their hiney's harder than their head. I get it. But I said from the beginning when we started talking about stewardship, if we believe that the Bible is the foundation we have to base our, our life on, then we've got to believe it for everything. And the word says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them. I didn't understand what it meant as a heart, having a heart of a father that you hurt when you have to use the rod of correction until I had a child. And when I loved my child so much that I knew that the, the discipline that needed to happen wasn't going to feel good to her nor to me, but I knew that the actions that she was demonstrating was going to hurt her much worse down the road. And I loved her enough in that moment to tell her, these choices you're making aren't healthy. You choose to rebel. I didn't just fly off and smack her and hit her. That didn't happen. When, we, when she got disciplined, there was a conversation that took place. That was harder on her and harder on me because I wouldn't do it in the heat of a moment. That's not healthy. But when I would 
would discipline her, it would hurt my heart. It would hurt my heart because I knew it was hurting her honey. Me hurting her honey hurt my heart because of the love of a father. But I also knew I had to love her enough that she could understand that this wasn't a good decision. And if she continued to make these decisions, it would be much, much worse than the rod of correction. It could do much more damage, even her life or the life of others. See, we've got to love them enough to tell them the truth and not just tell them the truth, but to, to discipline them so that they understand truth. And you know what? I didn't do everything perfect. That's the amazing thing of our Father. He doesn't make mistakes. But we, in our humanity, we do. It was more than once, just being transparent, there was more than once that I would discipline her and found out that I was wrong. Or I even did it in the wrong manner. And I would go back to her and I would sit down with her most of the time with tears in my eyes and say, Dad was wrong. I didn't have the whole story. I didn't have a full understanding. And I, re I reacted and I shouldn't have reacted. So I apologize. And you know what? She's not scarred. You know what else? She didn't do what statistics say most kids do, especially a PK a preacher's kid, that as soon as they get out of home, they forsake religion and they go buck wild and they go do their deal. And I don't say this arrogantly. I don't say this cocky. I'm not trying to puff up my daughter and make her something she's not. She's human. She makes mistakes just like every one of us do. But here's what I know. When she went to college, she didn't get wild. She didn't walk away from Jesus. She served Jesus in college when she wasn't at home. She went to church. She had a relationship with Jesus and she was vocal about her relationship with Jesus. All the way through college. She got married as a virgin. Thank you, Jesus. That's not condemning on anyone who didn't. I'm just telling you, when, when we believe the word and we live according to the word, it doesn't mean we're going to do it right, but it means he is good and he loves us and he can cover up our mess. Because I look back now at my daughter, 25, getting ready to have a daughter, and I go, man, I wish I'd have done this. Man, I wish I'd have done that. Man, I wish I'd have done this. I wish I'd have spent. I see parents, and some of the time they spend with their kids and how they grow. I mean, I, I look at Josh and Emily. It amazes me. And how they speak, even to Jubilee in the belly, they'll speak. And when Levi was in the belly, they would speak over him. They would prof make prophetic declarations over him. I didn't know that back then. And I look at that, and I see that, and I go, man, I wish I could have done that. And the Lord encourages me, is you can't go back, but you can go forward. And while I didn't do it perfect, he is perfect. And while I walked in love, not in, in, in perfection, but I walked in love, that his grace covered my mess. That's the heart of the Father that we have. And that's the heart he wants us to understand and that every bit of our lives is to be steward, stewarded toward him, that we see ourselves as his sons, yes, but as stewards in his house. And as I was looking at that, the Lord spoke three things to me, and there's, there's probably more, and you may see them different than I do, and that's all good. But when I was looking at these two brothers, he said there was three things where they missed it. They missed it in perspective, perception, and position. Their perspective was off. Perspective means this, a particular evaluation of something, measured assessment, assessment of a situation. So their assessment of the situation was off, both of them. For the younger brother, uh, his mindset was this, I'm an owner, so give me what's mine. It's rightfully mine. As a son, you owe this to me. 
I touched on it a little bit last week, and I think it's a plague in our society. It's not just the millennials or whatever generation this young one is right now. It's not just them. It's an, it's an understanding across the globe, worldwide, I believe, and it's this mindset of entitlement. Both of these brothers had that mindset. There's two different types of entitlement. One is because of who I am, you owe this to me. Because of where I live, I live in America, so you should pay my bills. All right, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to get political. That's not what I'm about. Or, uh, because of you're my daddy, you owe me this. You know, I, I've seen that. And affluent families, kids just tell their parents, you owe me this. I owe you a rod on your butts, what I owe. Help me, Jesus. So he had this mindset. It, give me what? What did he say? He came to say, he said, Father, give me what is mine. Did he work for it? It was what he did. No, he worked in the home, but it was his dad's. It wasn't his until his dad died. But he said, give me what's mine. The other son, the other son said this. The other son had a mindset. When you, when you continue to read him, let's look at him, verse 25. Now this older son was in the field, and it came, and as he came and drew near to the home, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and, become, and because he received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. You see the heart of the father? So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have served you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. I think he was a little deluded. I'm just saying. He's not Jesus. Right? And Jesus cleared that up. He said, if you think it in your heart, you've already done it. So he said, I never did anything wrong, Dad. He was under strong delusion. It's what he was on. Uh, what was happening with him. And he said, I never trust your man any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this, as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And you know what? Something about that verse 30, he said he, he uh, devoured your livelihood with harlots. It doesn't say anywhere in there that he was out with prostitutes. It just said that he lived lavishly. He, he was foolish. And this son, I don't know if he was checking up on his brother or if he was just so mad he was making up on his brother. Yeah, okay. Verse 31, he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that I would make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. See, he had in a sense of entitlement too, but his was because a legalistic mindset that said, look at what I've done. I didn't ever break your commandment. I didn't do anything wrong. So you owe this to me. And you know what? I see that. I see both mindsets, even in the church. I've heard people, and they say, well, I did this and this and this, but the Lord didn't do that. You know what that is? That's entitlement. I told you, it wasn't fun when I looked through the list of like 16 things that said this is what entitlement looks like, I'm an entitlement mindset. But one is, well, because I've performed well, then you owe me this. And you hear it when people say, well, I did this. I fasted. I prayed, but God still didn't do this. You know what that is? That's an entitlement mindset. That's not an understanding of grace. 
that says it's already provided. If something's missing, it's not because God won't give it because of my performance. It's because I don't understand. And that's what was happening here. He had this mindset, all this, I've never left you. What did he say? He said, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I could make merry with my friends. He said, I did everything right all the time. There's a problem. But he had that same sense of entire. His perspective was all wrong. His, uh, the way he measured that situation that he was in is this should have been mine, and he shouldn't do that to him because I've always been here and I've done everything right. And you know what? You can see that, and you can see that in our lives in a very real way when someone who's been out living like H E double hockey sticks. And they come in, and God lavishly pours his love on them. And they get healed supernaturally, or they get delivered from something that that you've been struggling with. And then you go, well, Lord, what's that about? I mean, look, I'm here. I change dirty diapers. I clean the church. I'll do whatever they ask me to do, and I still have this, God. Why aren't you doing anything for me? You know what that is? That's a wrong mindset. That's a legalistic mindset that says because of what I've done in performance, I have now obligated God to do something for me. When Jesus, what did he say to the son? Everything I have is already yours. It's already yours. If you wanted to make Mary and kill a fatty calf, you could have done it a long time ago. I would have just fattened up another one. How many of you know our dad's got more than one fatty calf? Thank you, Jesus. He's got more than one fat calf. You can be celebrated where you are for your victories, and it doesn't take away from Tim celebrating his victories. But if we have an entitlement mindset and we go, well, why is he getting celebrated? Why did the preacher talk about him? Why didn't he talk about me? It's that we get that mindset, then the focus goes off of the father and on to us. Both of these boys lost sight of the father. One thought he was an owner, that this is mine. The other one had the, the mindset of a slave. I worked. I did everything right, but you didn't do it for me. One said, you're obligated because of who I am, because I'm your son. The other said, you're obligated because of what I did. That's a trap. That's a trap that the enemy will snare us with. Because I'm going to tell you, I've been caught in those traps before. And if you feel that you have it, you're deceived. <laughs> because that's the, the, how he wants to trip us up. Because he wants us to lose sight of the Father. He wants us to lose sight of the heart that the Father has for us and how he is pursuing us. Even in our mess, no matter what our mess looks like, neither of these young men saw themselves as stewards of a father who was lavishing his love and his resources on them. In verse uh, 13, I want to go back just talking about the younger son just for a moment. Verse 13, it says this, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now, I'm not going to go back into uh, the, the parable of the sower, uh, sowing. But this word right here, uh, wasted, it literally means scattered, his substance, his money, 
Substance means money and possessions. So literally, this younger son, you know what he did? He took his seed, which was money, and he went out and he just scattered it all out everywhere on bad soil. He scattered it. He didn't steward it. He scattered it. He just threw it out doing whatever he wanted to do, whatever made him feel good. And all he was thinking about is the now. That's, a, that's a, I think, one of the biggest ploys of the enemy is to get us focused on the now. Being focused on the now, we'll miss our, our destiny. We'll miss our future. We'll miss the understanding that God has on us as far as his call and desire and will for us. And we'll spend for the now and pay for it forever. <laughs> Or for days and days and days to come. That's why our country's in such debt. That's why the average household is in such debt, is we want now what we don't need now, and we have to pay for it for months to come because we finance the future now. And all this son could think about was the now. And in that parable of the sower, in Mark chapter 4, verse 19, it says that his lust for other things. Choke the word. I think that's very parallel to this young man. His lust for other things. He spent it all. He didn't save anything. You know, that's a mindset today uh, uh, in the area of finances. That what it comes in, we, we eat it all. Eat all the seed. He said, except the corn of wheat, a grain of wheat falls in the ground and die. It abides alone. You can take that. It was just used the illustration of corn. You take the corn and you get an ear of corn, and you take that one ear, and you take, and you sow the kernel. You sow that for future harvest, and then you eat the rest. But if you've got an eat mindset, if you've got a now mindset, then you take everything that comes in, you eat every bit of it, and then you have nothing. And the thing about that is when you plant that, it doesn't come up right away. That's why you've got to know how to continually plant. You continually plant so that you can continually receive. Amen. He didn't save, he, did, all he, he didn't sow, all he did was ate. That's why when he says, he, he, when he had spent everything, he had nowhere to turn. You know why? Because he didn't use his money for anything but himself. His life, and you can call, call, call it money, that's what happened in this situation. He spent all his money. But your life, when you spend your life just for you and you look up and there's no one around, guess why? Because you spent all your time and all your energy, all your energy and all your attention just on you. And you look up and you're alone and you go, God, where are you? And he'll never leave you nor forsake you. But people will let you walk away. He didn't sow, he didn't say. Perception. It means this, to understand or comprehend. So perspective means how we measure or how we evaluate something. But perception means what we understand or comprehend about it. The younger brother had a mindset that money or things could make him happy. But you know what that, that mindset, it's consuming. It's never enough. It's never enough. You know, if, they, if, if money could make you happy, then the wealthiest people would be the happiest people. Is that what we see? No. As, as a matter of fact, if you look at the wealthiest people, they're some of the most miserable people. Not always. There are very wealthy people who love Jesus, and they're not miserable. But if, if 
money in itself, if material things in itself is what made you happy, then you look at the people who have the most of it, and you would think they would have it going on. But the contrary, you look at, even if you just look at Hollywood, and you look at the people who had the money, the fame, and all that, and they're on their fourth and fifth marriage, and they're fighting over their money and everything, that's not life. That's not life. There's no life there. Now, our money, is money bad? Absolutely not. The love of money is what the Bible says is bad. It's not money. Money's not bad. It's not good or bad. It's a magnifier. That's what money is. Money's a magnifier. It'll tell you where your heart is. It'll magnify what's going on on the inside of you. If you've got a lot of it, it'll show you where your heart is. If you don't have much of it, it'll show you where your heart is. Because when you get some, what you do with it determines. <laughs> yeah. And see, that I, I've said this before, but I realized in my life that people, we, call, we are quick to say that, that people that are financially well-off are materialistic because they have things. But what I found to be true when God highlighted my life is I had very little, but I was more materialistic than any of them because the things that I had meant more to me than what the things did to them. To them, it was just a resource. It was just something they had and something they used. But to me... You know how you know? Because touch it. You want to know? Touch it. Now, what are you talking about? You've got a thing that's precious to you and somebody else touches it? What rises up on the inside of you? Jesus, take the wheel because I'm about to hurt somebody. (laughs) It's a locator and it's a magnifier. That's what I believe. The younger brother... Money, he thought, was the answer to everything. The younger brother, who had it all, felt like it was out of reach. And that's a poverty mindset. You know what's so sad? Is you can have a poverty mindset with wealth and without. A poverty mindset says there's not enough, and if there is there, I can't get it. So we, we hold on to everything we get. And we feel like that it's our security. And that was the the older brother. That was the mindset that he had. But he had everything. Do you understand? In that culture, the older brother got twice as much as the younger. So when the father divided it up, it wasn't even. It was two-thirds and a third. So the older brother who was at home had two-thirds still with him. Wow. He had two-thirds, but he said, why didn't you do this for me? It was already his. Right? Right? And the same is true for us in any area of our lives. This is a book of promise. And the word says that all the promises in here are yes and amen. So if there's need in our life, then what we need to do is find out the seed of his word so that we can sow into it and receive the harvest that's necessary for where we are right here, right now. And is it always tied to finances? No, but I tell you this, majority of the time it is because finances is where most people put their trust. If I just had more, everything would be better. Anybody, you don't, please don't raise your hand. But you said, God, if I had this, I would do that. That's ever come in your mind, then we have worm to work. Because God doesn't ever say, well, if you had this, I would expect that of you. What God says is what's in your hand. 
What's in your hand right now? You know, I've I shared this, but the, little, the old farmer, two farmers were walking down the road, and one farmer looked at the, the other one. He said, you know what? If I had 10 cows, I'd give you two. His buddy said, you would? He said, I would. He said, if I had 10 chickens, I'd give you two. He said, you would do that? He said, I would. So the other farmer that was listening, he said, if you had two pigs, would you give me one? He said, you know I got two pigs. <laughs> wow. See, it's easy to promise what you don't have. But if we really know his heart and we trust him, then we can let go of what we do have because we know he's not trying to take it from us. He's trying to get something to us. He told me, he said, Todd, I don't care what you have. I care what has you. I care what you perceive is yours that you can't do without because if I touch it, then it's in a place between you and I and you put it there. He didn't. And that can just be pride. That can be pride. We can make a mistake and we'll allow pride to keep us from walking where God wants us because we look at that mistake and go, what will someone think if I actually admit I missed it? Instead of going, you know what? It's all under the blood. Jesus, I didn't do it intentionally. You've already forgiven me. Let me just tell you, every one of your sins are already forgiven. Now, you may not walk in the freedom of it if you don't receive that freedom. Just like the sins of the world have been paid for. It doesn't mean everyone's going to heaven. But their sins have already been paid for. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He will not be crucified again to pay for new sins. When he died for the sins, every one of your sins were in the future. So your future mistakes and mess-ups have already been covered by the blood of Jesus. Now, we walk in the freedom of that when we receive that forgiveness. And he wants through shame. That's what I love when we were talking about that, that getting rid of shame. I think that's the number one thing that, that clogs up the body is shame. Because we allow our mistakes to stop us from walking in freedom towards him and towards others. Position, which means location or posture. The younger brother's position was he was proud and he thought that money was just there to serve him. That it was owed to him, he was entitled to it, and it was there to serve him. Very proud. The older brother, his perspective was that he served for money. It was pride masquerading as humility. It was just pride masquerading as humility. Well, I did all this. I've never made a mistake and all that. You know what he was? He was prideful. He portrayed it as humility, but going back to where I began, neither of the sons understood the heart of the father. They wouldn't have approached the way they did. The younger son, he didn't have this epiphany, this great moment with God and said, I'm a sinner. He got hungry. <laughs> and he said, even the servants in my dad's house are doing better than I am. And, and I was going to go down through there and just look at this younger son and everything he did wrong, but it's okay. It, it's not worth it because it's not what he did wrong. It's what the father did right. Because if I start telling you everything the younger son did wrong, you say, well, I didn't do that. Then you'll slip over and be the older son and go, I didn't do any of that, so I must be good, so God, why isn't it working? 
instead of saying, God, you've already given. You've already done. But I'm going to tell you this. What's coming out of your mouth is important because death and life is in the power of the tongue. You can believe one thing and say something else, and you're going to see what you say, not what you believe. That's what Mark 11, 23, and 24 talks about. It says that you will say, whosoever shall say. Say is mentioned three or four times, and believe is mentioned once. Because God created us. Out of all the creation, he created us speaking beings. The only ones. Why? Because through our tongue comes authority, dominion. We rule and reign through our tongue. And how we steward it. So we can be doing everything right like the older son. We can be giving and doing what we're supposed to, but if we're cursing everything we're saying, then it's, it undoes what God says I will do because our tongue is where he's given us authority. Amen. So let's turn back over. I'll, I'll, I'll close with 1 Corinthians 13, 2 Corinthians 3. I was, you were going to get some love because that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is, but love. Because this is the answer for both. Uh, well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll look at verse 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? That's beautiful to me. Think about that. Moses went up on the mountain, spent time with God. God gave him the Ten Commandments. He was the first person to break all ten. That's not original with me, but it's still cute. He came down, saw them having a party. I'll leave it at that because we have some little kids sitting in the room today. It wasn't a good party. He threw down the Ten Commandments and God said, come back up. (laughs) Stephen, stop. (laughs) And when Moses came down, it says that his face was shining so much that the children of Israel couldn't even look at him. So Moses had to veil his face. Because the glory of God was so uh, tangible on his face. Are you with me? The glory of God was tangible on his physical face because the time he had spent with the Lord. And he said it was glorious, but it was fading because it was passing away. Because what he gave wasn't, com- couldn't compare to what we have. He had the presence of God on him. We have the presence of God in us. We should shine like lights wherever we go. And I'm telling you, one of the things that stops us is a sense of entitlement. In our job, wherever we are, in the grocery store, whatever, if we think I should be somewhere that someone else is, then you've put yourself in a position you don't belong, and you cut off what God's trying to do in you. Oh, me. How, much, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Verse 9. For the, if the ministry of condemnation... What's he talking about? The law. What did the law do? It condemned. It showed us our need for God. The law, I'll say this again, the Ten Commandments weren't given so that we could live right. They were given to show us what right living looked like, but to show us also that we couldn't do it. That's what the purpose of it was. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even... Verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. 
For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Verse 13, and then he parallels. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Now, different commentators say different things about this. But it said that the longer Moses was out, the glory faded, but he kept the veil. I think he kept the veil because what he veiled before because they couldn't look, once it was fading, he didn't want them to look. So he kept it veiled. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses read, a veil, remained, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, being holding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. I said earlier that the tongue, that God created us speaking beings, and there's power in our tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Jesus said those who love it will eat the fruit of it. And that's, that's Proverbs, sorry. But throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, throughout Proverbs, it talks about the power of the tongue. In the New Testament, Jesus taught about the tongue. We see it throughout the Gospels, the, the power of the spoken word. And here he said this, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of what? Speech. So the word hope there, it means this, to anticipate usually with pleasure. It means an expectation or confidence. To look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. So he said this, since we have this new thing, the Spirit of God in us, we have this new thing, the new covenant, not based on our works, but on his finished work. He said, then we can have great hope. And that's why I said earlier, I feel like God is saying, I want to restore hope. I believe in this room. I know it's been in my life. There are areas where I allowed hope to die. That confident expectation of good. There were areas I go, yes, but I've been believing in this area for a long time and it still looks like this. And you know what? You'll let your tongue pair up with what you've been seeing and experiencing and it'll stop the destiny that God has for you. It's true. Hope says, I have expectation with pleasure and with confidence of the good that's coming. That's different. That's contrary to what this world has. That's contrary to this world's system. This world's system is you expect the worst and it'll happen. And it does. You become a self-fulfilling prophecy. He said, with, with hope, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness. And this word boldness means this, outspokenness, frankness, bluntness, assurance, a state of boldness and confidence. So here, both of these words deal with confidence. He said, though, since we have such hope, what is our hope in? Our Father. 
Our hope is in the Father that we serve, that He is good, that He loves us, that He has an expected end for us, that He has a destiny and a dream for us, and all He wants us to do is partner with that dream, that we won't see ourselves with the mindset of either of the sons. One of them was, this is what's owed me. The other one says, this is what I've worked for. Grace in the middle says, this is what you provided. This is what you provided, Jesus, through your finished work. So when I look to Jesus and what he accomplished, then I can have hope and I can have great boldness in my speech. Even when I might have uncertainty in my mind, I can have confidence in my heart and I can speak. That's what he's looking for. And that looks different in every situation, every circumstance. I, I want to share this one testimony, I have several I want to share, but I want to be good and share this one. The first of the week, we were uh, on a call, uh, a fire call, and uh, the chief at our department has had, he had rotator cuff surgery on his left shoulder. He had actually had to have it twice. He had it one time, and it didn't work. It was still a tear in there, so he, he had to do it. They had to go in and do the same surgery a second time. And uh, we were standing out outside of the home, and we were talking, and he said, man, my shoulder's hurting me. And it rose up on the inside of me. And this is something that the Lord has been stirring in me, and Stephen and I talked about this the other day, is radical obedience, instant obedience. And he said, my shoulder hurts. I said, can I pray for you? There were other firemen and policemen there. He said, yeah. He looked at me like that. So I put my hand on his shoulder, and I didn't talk to God about it. I talked to it about what God has done. I said, pain, you go in Jesus' name. I speak to, to soreness. I speak to, to pain. I command you to go right now in Jesus' name. And he, he, he looked at me. His eyes got real big. He said, when you put your hand on me, all the pain left. I said, it's supposed to. That's what I said. He said, it's gone. So a few minutes went by, we were there, and he actually had to help lift the patient, and he grabbed it with that arm. So when he grabbed it with that arm, he switched to the other arm. He came over, and I said, how's your shoulder? He said, when you touched it, it quit hurting. It's still, it doesn't hurt. I'm like, you're supposed to. I said, that's Jesus. He wants you to know who he is and how much he loves you. I didn't say, well, that's me. It's what I do. It's just what I do. I said, that's Jesus. He wants you to know how much he loves you and that that thing concerned him because it concerned you. That's who he is. But if we don't know who he is, we will say, well, I would pray for that person, but, you know, I prayed for myself the other day and it didn't work. So why am I going to pray for them? Then I make me and Jesus look bad. He's not worried. He's not worried. And when, when we go, okay, I'll step out in radical obedience. I don't have all the answers. Then it meets him, and we declare what he says, and he moves. And then we can both stand there in shock. I can't, I can't tell you how many people I've prayed for, knowing the word, stepping out in obedience, not full of faith and power like I should be, but just in obedience, stepping out, saying, Jesus, this is what you said, and this is what you've prompted me. I'm going to do it. Pray for somebody. They get healed, and we both go, snap. 
That's awesome. <laughs> Jesus. And then we act like we was all that. Yeah. Amen. That's what we do. That's what we do. But the more we understand the heart of our Father, and that he said, I've given you these things for you to give out. See, if we don't see ourselves as the owner, it's just ours, of our finances, our time, what we do with our life. If we see every day and we go, God, you've called me to be a steward, and today I have an opportunity to steward what's in my hand. He's not asking me to steward what's in Ben's hand. I can partner with Ben, but I can't steward what's in his hand. I can steward what's in my hand. And you know what's in your hand? It's the money that God's put in your life. And you say, well, I can't afford to give it to God. Then you see yourself as an owner and not a steward. And what God's trying to do is get it through you. If he gets it through you, he'll get it to you. I'm telling you, I'm a living testimony. My wife and I, we could tell you story after story after story how God's gotten it through us. So, and so, therefore, he could continue to get it to us. If it's our time, if it's where we are, ask the Lord. When you go to Walmart. I'm not saying every time you go to Walmart, it has to be a ministry excursion, but just ask the Lord while I'm here, Lord, is there someone that you want me to speak to? And if he highlights somebody, you do it right then. Do it right then before you even think about it. Because if you think about it, you'll think yourself out of it. If we'll just be radically obedient to do what the Lord's told us to do. I'm going to share one more, but I'm not landing this. Landon, come on up here. You're just looking like you're just wanting to share this. Come on and share it. I don't want to tell your story. I'll tell my part. So Landon Wednesday was uh, leaving to go to the mountains to fight wildfire. It's on. And uh, he stopped by, I guess, to see your mom before you were leaving. Is that? Get a haircut. Get a haircut. It's pretty, too. Tell your mom she did a good job. Thank you. She did a good job. So he's there, and he's talking. He starts texting me. And he said, hey, man. I'm talking to this nun. Isn't that cool? I'm like, at first I'm like, where in the world is Landon and he's talking to a nun? <laughs> that was the thoughts running through my mind. And uh, I said, so he starts asking me, it's about symbolism in the Bible. Why did, they, why did the Bible use this and why not this and all this? And so I answered a few of them. And then when it kept going on, I recognized what it was. I said, this is just a religious spirit trying to prove a point. So I text Landon back and I said, here's what I want you to do. I said, just ask them if they've ever experienced the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if they say no, then invite him and watch. That was what I said. And then Landon quit texting. <laughs> so I got excited. I'm like, oh, Lord, what's going on? And then later I got a call. But after we text, you, you, she was, this is not just a nun. She was 92 so, I mean, this is at a nursing home. Like, this is all old people. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. Oh. Senior adults. Senior adults. <laughs> but um, anyways, so we were in there, and, of course, I'm cutting up with my mom. And Well, this, this lady, my mom, has told her about me going to Convergence. And she said... Which is a school ministry. Yeah, and uh, she was like, well, I got some questions for you. And she was talking about... You know, in the Bible it talks about um, eagles. I don't remember the verse, uh -oh. but it's it's talking about covering you with the wings of the eagles, wings, the wings you know? of an eagle. Yeah. Um, and she was like, "Why an eagle? 
well, I, uh, how you doing? It's nice to meet you. <laughs> Jesus like, loves you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Lord's good. <laughs> and, uh, Jesus is beautiful. I, like, well, I don't know. And, and it kind of shocked her. So I was like, I'm going to text Todd. <laughs> so the first thing that came to mind is, is powerful. I mean, when you think of an eagle, I mean, that's the largest bird out there. I mean, it's the wings. I don't even know how big they are, but. Seven. Thank you. Eight. Bam. So that's how we do it here. And uh, so I'm just thinking, I'm, and I'm giving her everything that is coming to my mind, and I'm praying about it, and then I text Todd. There, <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> Ask. So, Phone a friend. Yeah, phone a friend. So anyways, um, long story short, you know, she just, she never felt the Holy Spirit. And it bothered me because I didn't really know what to do. I'm like, well, Todd said pray for it. So just ask the presence yeah, of the Lord to come. the presence of the Lord. I was like, put my phone up. And I, I asked her, I said, can I pray with you? Can I ask the Holy Spirit to come? And she's like, okay, I mean... She's like, this dude's weird. And didn't so she I say got, she didn't believe in that or no, something? No, she didn't believe it. She right. didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, none. Yeah, it's a none. And that's what worried me. I'm like, she probably knows the Bible like all through and through. And I'm sitting here like, I, I just started this school stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting a little worried. Anyways, God is beautiful. Yes, so he is. I, uh, I got down on the floor, and I, I just knelt in front of her. And I mean, there's like eight people, you know, senior adults. And, um, and then my mom, who is not, I mean, her faith is not there. And she tries, to, I think, to please me, but it's just not there, and I know it. And anyways, I'm just, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to come, and this lady's hands start shaking. And I said, what's wrong? She said, my hands are burning. <laughs> Come on, Jesus. God is beautiful. <laughs> and, so, and then I looked over at my mom, and she's wiping her forehead. And I said, what's wrong? She said, it's just hot. <laughs> it's really hot. And, and that lady, I, I honestly believe in my heart, that lady got saved. And she said, I've never felt this way before. And I said, it's about the relationship. Yeah. I said, step away from the religion. And get into the relationship. 92-year-old nun gave yeah. her heart to Jesus in the beauty shop. Good job. Yeah. He asked her, he said, you know, do you have relationship with the Lord that you just encountered? She said, I don't think so. And he said, would you like to? And she said, yeah. And she prayed right there. 92 years old. That's the heart of a father. Pursued that woman. All those years when she was in religion, and I'm not speaking against nuns or anything like that. I'm just saying, this is a testimony. She didn't have a grid. She said, I don't know about the Holy Spirit. And then he said, okay, Holy Spirit, come. He's not afraid. (laughs) And he showed up. He came. And this woman said, I've never met that God, but I want to know him. That's our Father. That's the one that's pursuing us. That's the one that loves us.